But Acts chapter 6 and then on into 7 tells the story of Israel from Abraham all the way through to the days of, well, really Stephen himself in the first century. So let's listen now to the Word of God starting at Acts chapter 6, if you'll turn there, and verse 9, or actually verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on, but even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. Remember, the dispute is over this place. Stephen mentioned. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot and circumcised Jacob, and Jacob begot and circumcised the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood 
that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a judge and deliverer over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? At this saying, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey but rejected and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Yes, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rimphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, don't let us get lost in the details. Help us to see Stephen's points, to understand them and apply them to ourselves. Father, don't let us wander off the path and become lawbreakers who are convinced that we are law keepers. Thank you that your son reigns and that he is free to change how he reigns. Help us to know that, to believe that, to trust in him and to submit to his reign as it is expressed today in your church. Give me wisdom and boldness to speak powerfully with the demonstration of your spirit what this text has to tell us this morning. We pray that you would help us all to listen, to be changed to the next degree of glory by the teaching of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you probably know, here nine minutes into the sermon, this is the longest speech in Acts by a fairly significant margin. We're one quarter of the way in, chapter 7 of 28 chapters, and Luke gives us this magnificent set piece, speech that's bigger than Peter's Pentecost speech, bigger than the speech describing the inclusion of the Gentiles in chapter 10, longer then the account of the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. Why does Luke give so much space to material that already appears in the Bible? Everything in this is simply retelling Exodus, Numbers, and a little bit of what's in Samuel and Kings. A few verses from Amos, a few verses from Isaiah. Why does Luke spend so much time here? Well, the answer is that he wants to tell us how we got here. He's using historical narrative as theological argument. He's describing the prehistory of the reign of Christ and linking it to Christ's current present day reign. Above all, Stephen is defending Jesus' right to destroy the temple and change the Mosaic customs. Obviously, that's a huge deal in Acts for Christianity as a whole. Does Jesus have the right to scrap the Levitical system? This speech, in all its length, every detail is directed towards saying, yes, Jesus is allowed to junk the Levitical system and bring in a new way of administering salvation for his people. So let's look at it. We're going to try to focus on the main points today. We won't ever look at all the details here. but We've already spent two weeks trying to put this speech in context, and we've got about four more looking at various points within the speech. Today we're trying to get the big picture of what Stephen is doing in this speech. 
As you can see in chapter 6, verse 9, it all started with an argument. Stephen happens to get involved in a theological dispute with some men from a particular synagogue. Now, according to the archaeologists, something like 600 synagogues were in Jerusalem at this time. But this one, the synagogue of the freedmen, which was an ethnic congregation, but not what we would think of as an ethnic congregation with people from one place. This is people from four places. We have two groups of Africans. We have Cyrenians and Alexandrians. And we also have two groups of people from Asia Minor slash Syria, those from Cilicia and Asia. So, And of course, it's easy to speculate that one of these people happened to be the young man named Saul, who was, of course, from Cilicia. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that, but it's an interesting thought. Anyhow, there's this an ethnic congregation, perhaps one that Stephen himself had belonged to before he was a Christian, and he starts arguing with these folks. And he wins! And they are unwilling to change their minds because he won and proved them wrong, and so they decide to fight dirty, and they go recruit some false witnesses, see if they can get some people who will get him condemned to death. And in fact, they successfully do that. They appeal to force, get false witnesses who come and make charges regarding this place, that is the temple, and the law. Or phrased another way, Jesus will destroy this place, change the customs which Moses delivered. So the argument has two prongs, or the accusations have two prongs. Prong one, Stephen is opposed to the temple. Prong two, Stephen is opposed to the entire Mosaic Levitical system. And therefore, he's guilty. That's the accusation. Now, the trial begins, right? In ancient times, trials were scheduled much faster than they are today. And so they drag him right off to the trial. The high priest utters his one line. Is that so? Which the high priest has the cordiality to let Stephen speak. He's willing to hear Stephen's side of the story. And Stephen starts on common ground. Abraham. Well, before we get there, of course, we have to see the clue Luke gives us right in the last verse of chapter 6. Stephen's face. Even before the trial starts, you can take one look at the guy and know that he's not guilty. His face looked like the face of an angel. And what you see is what you get. Except that appearances can be deceiving, right? We have these two contradictory proverbs in English. Which is true. Well, they're both true to some extent. Luke is simply saying... Faces show what's in the heart often enough that they should have looked at his face and said, I don't think he's guilty. A man with a face like that is not likely to be blaspheming Moses and God. But the high priest doesn't say, look at his face, he's innocent, let him go. 
Instead, he asked Stephen to use his tongue, not just his face, to speak for himself. And so Stephen begins to tell the group their story. Notice how frequently he emphasizes this is our story. He doesn't refer to them as the patriarchs. He refers to them as our fathers, our fathers, our ancestors, our forebears. They did this. It's the same ultimately as saying we did this. We came at God's call. We settled this land. We built this tabernacle. We followed Moses out of Egypt. He's telling the group, the story of the group, in order to say to the group, this is where we are today based on our past history. Telling them where they've come from to get across a particular vision of who they are now. So where did they come from? Well, his first point, really, is that historically speaking, God's glory is not confined to the temple. I'm not the one threatening this place. God is free to show himself in a multitude of places beside the temple. Now, the Sanhedrin, of course, would have considered this to be an irrelevant point. That's history that's long past. Imagine being given the chance to to speak to the British Parliament today. And making the simple point that historically, the British Constitution gives the monarch a far greater role than the monarch enjoys today. They wouldn't argue with your history. They wouldn't say, no, 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 that's not true. What would they tell you? British Constitution has changed. Today's monarch doesn't set policy, doesn't personally rule like the Tudors and the Stuarts did 500 years ago. Times are different. So yeah, historically the monarch had a greater role. Big deal. What would Stephen's response to that be? Well, simply this, God doesn't change. The British Constitution changes. But the God who manifested himself in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in the wilderness, at Sinai, is the same God who today can manifest himself in any of those places or beyond. He's not tied to the temple. Historically, right? Sanhedrin, you and I have this in common. We acknowledge that, historically speaking, God appeared in a multitude of locations. And all I'm adding to that, Stephen says, is that God has not changed. He can still appear in any and every one of these places. And of course, as Christians, this idea is baked into our Christian DNA. We firmly believe that God manifests himself just as much that a worship service under a tree in Africa, on a shipboard chapel in the Bering Strait, in a beautiful cathedral in Chile, or in a plain meeting house in New England. God is not confined or tied to any one of those places, but he is free to manifest himself in all of them. How is that in our DNA? Well, from Stephen and the other apostles who spent years of effort prying their own mindset and that of their Jewish fellow converts out of this idea that God 
lives in the temple in such a way that he is not going to move. No, says Stephen. Historically, God appeared all over the map. And he can still do that. Theologically, then, the corollary of that, God doesn't live in handmade temples. The idea that God was ever confined to the temple is actually unbiblical. Stephen quotes the passage from Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? God is saying, what architectural firm will you hire to design heaven on earth? What subcontractor, what general contractor is going to be able to put together the new Jerusalem? Heaven is my throne. You won't build me a new heaven and lure me to move in there. Because God doesn't live in temples made with hands, which Solomon himself said at the dedication of the first temple. Right? Historical narrative is theological argument. God is not stuck in your little box. High priest, you don't have him on a leash where you can lead him out and show him to the crowds and then take him back into the Holy of Holies God is not someone you control or someone who lives in your institution where you're his little guardian. He doesn't live in handmade temples. And so you're accusing me of wanting to destroy the temple. Who cares? The temple is not the be-all, end-all. It's not God's final forever dream home. He can move out at any time. Of course, God went on to physically destroy the temple just a few decades after this speech. Stephen's third point, Israel has a history of idolatry. Yes, you had God in your temple, but did you worship him? Well, let's see. Golden calf at the beginning of Israel's history. And then quotes from Amos. Forty years in the wilderness, did you offer sacrifices to God rightly? No. You were already carrying a tabernacle for Moloch. You were worshiping this false god, Remphan. Of course, the verse immediately after this, in Amos 5, is the one that we just read this morning. Let justice roll down like waters. God saying, not only did you worship false gods, you didn't do justice, mercy, and faith, the weightier matters of the law. You were too busy worshiping your idols. You thought God lived among you and therefore you weren't idolaters? Well, I'm sorry to break it to you. And further, right, I will carry you away beyond Babylon. It's idolaters who get taken to Babylon. Israel had been in exile in Babylon for a long time. Fifth, fourth point, Israel has a history of rejecting God-appointed leaders. He starts by talking about Joseph and how on their first coming, his brothers didn't recognize him or submit to him. It's only on the second coming of the brothers that they recognized it was Joseph. They rejected Moses. Most of Stephen's speech, of course, is about Moses because he was accused of not liking Moses, not submitting to Moses. He says, let me tell you about Moses. 
Who is it that didn't submit to Moses? Oh, I know. God's people in general didn't submit to Moses. What's the implication? That very much includes you. This man whom they rejected saying, who made you a judge and deliverer over us? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer. The people of God didn't accept Moses, but God put him in charge anyway. And then the prophets. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Verse 52. I really like that one of the commentators says, this statement, this question is simply false. I guess he was thinking of Gad, perhaps, David's personal prophet, not persecuted. But can you think of any other named prophet who was accepted and lauded by the establishment? There's not one, and even Gad had to take his life in his hands at times. Or Nathan, when, like Nathan, right, confronting David over adultery and murder. I think it's quite true that you can't find a prophet who is accepted and loved. Sure, they experienced varying degrees of persecution. But they were all persecuted. And this trajectory culminates in the rejection of the righteous one of whom they had become the betrayers and murderers. You rejected Joseph, you rejected Moses, you rejected the prophets, you rejected Jesus. A message that Peter has already preached several times in the book of Acts. Stephen repeats it. Now what is Stephen doing? Well, he's vindicating his teaching. I was telling you the truth. I was right in our little argument last week, or whenever it was. God has the right to change where he lives. God has the right to scrap the Levitical system. So Stephen is vindicating his teaching. The temple is not the only holy place in which God is at work. There is nothing sacrosanct about the Levitical system. They can both be replaced. They are expendable. But Luke also has a purpose in giving us Stephen's speech. And what's Luke's purpose? Well, he's vindicating the reign of Christ. Jesus reigns even though the Levitical system is going to the junkyard. Because the Levitical system is not the only way in which Christ could possibly reign. He reigns today in a new way. Just as in the past, before the Levitical system, he reigned over his people in the days of Abraham, in the days of Joseph, long before Moses ever gave the Levitical system. That's Stephen's point, or that's Luke's point in telling us. Jesus reigns despite the Levitical system coming to an end. In fact, Luke is going on and saying the Christian message trumps the Jewish way. What we Jewish people have been taught is actually less certain than Christ's reign in the church. The certainty of the kingdom is greater than the certainty of the temple. The longevity of Christ's rule is greater than the longevity of the temple 
and the Levites and the sacrifices and that whole way of administering God's covenant. Now again, just like the omnipresence of God, this newness factor is baked into our DNA as Christians. We are almost inherently biased in favor of the old way was probably not quite as good as whatever new thing is going to come down the pipe. We believe in progress because we started by making a break from traditional Judaism. A break that we say, with good reason, was authorized by God himself. I remember as a community college student sitting in in the lobby one day, meeting another one of my fellow students, getting into a theological discussion with him. He was from another church in Greeley. And we were talking about some practice that his church had. I don't remember what it is. And I said, are you sure you guys ought to be doing that? He was like, yeah, yeah. new wineskins, man. <laughs> this idea of the new It's different than the historic practice, therefore it's probably better. Is in the church for a very good reason. We needed it to move beyond the Levitical way. But it can be abused to the throwing out of good things that the church needs. So Stephen vindicates his teaching. Luke vindicates the reign of Christ. Finally, Luke transitions to a second bit of historical narrative that's a further theological argument. His first point, well, Israel's response to its history demonstrates its guilt. Stephen says, you break the law of God and kill the prophets. So what do they do in response to that accusation? Oh, they break God's law and they kill a prophet. Right. What is Stephen thinking as the stones hit him? You're not helping your case. You're not proving that you're right. In fact, you're proving that I'm right because I said you people break God's law and kill prophets. So it is. Israel, here's their history, and the way they respond shows them to be guilty. But Stephen's response demonstrates his Christ-likeness as he dies, like his master, praying for God to forgive them. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. So how do we live? Somebody lays out the facts, the historical narrative, that shows that you're guilty of something. What does your response show? Do you lie, obfuscate, throw sand, fight back? Lay out a historical narrative showing how they're five times guiltier? Or do you behave like Stephen? And show by your holy conduct that either, right, what you said is superior or that you were wrong and you repent and change. Do we live as though our faith is the truth And does believing what we say we believe make us more morally upright? So the final vindication of Stephen, he was vindicated already at the beginning by his face as he sat in the courtroom. 
He looked like an angel. But now at the end, he looks into heaven and sees the face of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Vindication that this is where you're going, Stephen. When those stones crush your skull, you'll be going straight into the presence of Jesus. Does God smile on our deeds as he did on Stephen's? Jesus has the right to abolish the temple and change the Mosaic customs. Stephen announced it and died for it. Leaving us with the challenge to live for the new temple and the new customs that Jesus gave us, the new way of worship. It's not confined to a temple, but is everywhere God's people meet. It's driven rather than by sacrifices and Levitical system and uh, people from a particular family running the priesthood and so on. The new customs are driven by hearing the word, partaking the sacraments, meeting with the people of God, praying together. Stephen died for this new way. Are we willing to live for it? Jesus reigns. The administration is different, but it's still him. Still reigning. So trust and obey him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Stephen's speech, the history he gave, the the theology he expressed, that you can change your residence, that you no longer live in a particular building in Jerusalem, that you now live wherever your people gather. Father, thank you that Jesus reigns and that he reigns in the midst of his people. Help us to submit to that reign, including by knowing when we've been beaten in an argument and changing our mind and humbling ourselves, including by knowing when we've sinned and repenting and turning away from that sin and not sinning it anymore. Help us, Father, not to be driven by pride, but to be driven by humility, a humility that is also a confidence that Jesus truly reigns. Thank you for sending Stephen to tell us these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.